Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the Value Driven Marketing Podcast. I am Elena, your host, and in today's episode, I'm talking to Nelson Gilliet about what is wrong with the way B2B companies uh, sell and do marketing today and why his model, the buyer-centric revenue model, is a better one, how it enables marketing and sales teams to do meaningful work, uh, how it provides a better buying experience, and eventually enables companies to grow long-term. Just a few words about my guest. So Nelson is the author of the book, uh, The Death of the SDR and the Birth of the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model. The book was launched in September 2021, and was just recently updated. So the second edition uh, was just launched recently. Uh, he's also the founder um, of the Slack community with the same name, the Biocentric Revenue uh, Model. And in the community, people discuss how to better implement this model. Uh, so join me in this very interesting conversation. Hey, Nelson, welcome to the Value Driven Marketing Podcast. How is it going? Hey, Lena, great. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to, uh, to have you on the podcast uh, and just to give a little bit of context to people listening to this, um, where this came from. So in the podcast, we're trying to bring into the spotlight companies and marketing leaders who do great marketing. They are um, customer focused. They try to educate. They focus on the long term. But the reality is you cannot do great marketing um, if the rest of the organization is sales focused, if there's a big push on revenue, uh, on short term. And so the big question for me is, you know, there's a better model out there, but how do you make the leap to that model? And luckily you speak about this uh, in your book, The Death of the SDR and uh, the Birth of the Biocentric Revenue Model. Um, and as we are chatting earlier, there's also a second edition of the book. So yeah, I think we, we have some interesting learnings. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. And for any marketing or sales leader or CEO or investment capitalist that is wrestling with how to build the best marketing and sales growth playbook to achieve the best growth, not only in the short term, but in the midterm and long term, like there's no, mm -hmm. if you do it right, there's no sacrifice between the short term and long term. It's a win in the short term and a long term. We can definitely talk about that. Great, great. So let's, um, you know, take a step back. Um, walk me through how did you come to write the book in the first place? And then what is the buyer-centric revenue model? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, want, I wanted to create the ideal marketing and sales playbook. I started out in B2B at a large... Um, you know, mature B2B company, about 1,500 employees, uh, you know, global company. And mm -hmm. it had been around for a long time. And there were a lot of problems I observed in marketing and sales. And I was trying to diagnose it and get it right. Um, and maybe that's the Jewish doctor in me. You know, I, I'm <laughs> Jewish and didn't go to medical school, didn't go to law school. So I had to try to do something uh, to appease my mom. And so... Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and I tried to understand what the, you know, play a detective a little bit and like try to trace the symptoms of the problem back to the root problem. And I realized that the root problem was the current B2B marketing and sales model today that's very trendy, that has been popular since the early 2000s. And that has resulted in 
you know, the these problems, the straitjacket that these B2B companies are in that that harms their growth, that harms marketers and sellers and investment capitalists to the extent that it's adopted. And it's the good elements, despite these bad practices, mm. um, that, you know, enable these companies to grow. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I then moved to a startup where I, it was like six people, it was seed stage, you know, we had a lot of freedom and we had the, the necessity to do proper marketing and sales to grow properly. And so we were able to build, you know, a pretty good marketing and sales engine from the ground up. And that's when I got to see what is possible and what could be and answer a lot of the questions that I had. And I also started, so I originally started off as an SDR and then into sales, and then I got to wear a marketing hat. So I saw the full gamut and I saw what marketing is capable of when I was uh, at this startup. Um, you know, it's a, it's a young, unknown startup, brand new category. You got to do a lot of marketing and um I got to get, we were kind of marketing into marketers uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then I started to see that like, there's a huge shift going on in B2B from sales to marketing. Um, Whereas in like the pre-internet era, companies were primarily sales led. Like if you wanted to grow, you hired sales. Um, That the buyer's decision to purchase was mostly influenced by sales, not marketing. That that had changed. I got to get involved in the LinkedIn community and, and, and hear from marketers and hear from folks like Chris Walker and learn from them. And then that enabled me to sort of build this ideal that I always wanted to build, like what would be the best playbook? Because I just recognized that the old play, like that the playbook that people were running was just not working. Because I see these problems at many companies and I hear these problems all over LinkedIn. And when I was, uh, when I was working at this startup, and working with a lot of marketing and sales development teams at many different companies and many different sizes, I saw these problems across many companies. Um, and then in all my research and in all my interviews, I kept seeing these patterns and was able to abstract from that the root source, which is the predictable revenue model. And we'll talk about that, what that is. We'll talk about what the what the alternative that I proposed, the buyer-centric revenue model is. And then separate from the predictable revenue model, I identified uh, two other key problems, which are quota and commission, um, Mm -hmm. which are sales, you know, issues, but they affect everybody. They affect the company, they affect investment capitalists, they affect marketing. Um, And so um, that's not like, oh, that's a sales problem that they should worry about. It's like, no, if you're a marketer or you're CEO or you're CFO, investment capitalist, like these are all problems that you need to solve because... Um, they are the the root of, you know, they, they affect the whole growth organization. So with that, um, I'll introduce the, the buyer-centric revenue model. Um, now, basically, the buyer-centric revenue model has five parts. Um, the first one is that marketing is solely responsible for generating and qualifying leads for sales through proper mm-hmm. non-spam marketing. And so that sunsets sales development and prospecting, or at least as much as possible. So that's the first one. The second one is what I call full sales cycle sales, which is an AE CSM combined or an account executive and a customer success manager combined. Um, No buyer handoffs and no prospecting amongst the sellers. Um, And so that sunsets the sales assembly line 
or the AECSM split and other subdivisions and condenses the sales role as much as possible. And so I'll, I'll pause here and just say that these two, um, sales development and the sales assembly line is what the predictable revenue model is. Um, and we'll, and we'll talk a little bit more about the predictable revenue model, but just hold that in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. Now, the third thing is a suite of holistic goals and metrics, um, that are annual in duration, which you track monthly or quarterly, just like any other department or the company as a whole that, uh, are divorced from commission because, uh, we'll cover compensation in a moment, but you pay your sellers a full salary and bonus. Um, and yeah, um, are real metrics, um, that actually matter and they matter to the CEO and they matter to, uh, investors when they are analyzing the efficacy of marketing and sales. And they are like things like profit, um, you know, revenue minus expenses. People often forget the profit where they only care about revenue, but they forget about cost. So profit, <laughs> revenue, profit the number. Yeah, right. You know, number of customers, number of opportunities, um, the dollar amount of your opportunities, your conversion rates throughout the funnel, um, you know, from demo request to demo held, from meeting held to opportunity, opportunity to close one or close lost, um, your win rate, your sales cycle, your average selling price, churn, customer satisfaction score, uh, customer acquisition cost, customer acquisition cost payback period, customer lifetime value. Like these are real marketing and sales metrics. And, and marketing and sales should have similar, you know, metrics so that they're aligned. And today they don't, which is one of the reasons why there's a big misalignment. Um, and that these metrics, these proper like holistic goals and metrics, um, you know, should be applied across the initial sale expansion retention. So, you know, if you're a sales leader and you're trying to analyze your sales, you should be looking at the initial sale expansion retention and applying these metrics. If you're marketing, you should be looking at how your leads are performing throughout the funnel. And then, um, you know, marketing does a lot with it, with the initial sale and with expansion and with retention with customer marketing as well. They're, they influence a lot of the buyer's decision to purchase. They should be gauging how the efficacy of their leads, um, all the way through and, and try to track these metrics. And, um, that way there's alignment with sales and you can really gauge the strength of your, of your go to market of your marketing and sales engine. Um, and so that's the third one. And, and oh, I'm sorry. And then, um, that sunsets quota. And we can talk a little bit more about what quote is. The fourth one, uh, or part of the buyer-centric revenue model, is full salary plus bonus compensation for sellers. And that sunsets commission. And the fifth one um, is buyer self-service to the extent desired and possible um, instead of artificially forcing buyers uh, through sales. And so you know, giving buyers the option like free trial, freemium, uh, you know, demo recording on the website, a sandbox environment, um, you know, a chat feature for sales for just like quick questions and a buy now button. It's like, you know, um, you should be able just to like, if, if you self-educate yourself, there should be an option where it's like, yeah, okay. Um, to whatever extent possible, like let me self-serve. 
And that isn't the case. There's still this old motion of forcing everyone through sales. So those are the five, those are the five elements. Um, and uh, I think those address the five key problems that, you know, that are really putting a damper on, on growth and is, is the cause of a lot of the frustration amongst marketers and sellers and CEOs who are trying to grow their company and, and like are, are, are seeing that their growth is harmed and that, you know, the, the turnover and tenure and the performance of the talent isn't where it should be. So, and the happiness yeah. of the of the people, I would say, because like talking to you know marketing leaders, um, it comes up. You know, there's a frustration in working with sales. There's a frustration of having to rush initiatives and things uh, just to get new leads. And I think. Uh, it matters a lot um, the intention from which you act. Like if the intention is to push a product to potential clients um, and just, you know, get contact data out to sales, that's what you're going to get. If the intention is to serve and find the right people uh, for your product, then I think you're going to do things differently and the result is going to be different. But a lot of um, goodies uh, that you just, you know, uh, gave me uh, in your first answer so a lot of information to unpack okay so <laughs> like uh yeah let's talk a little bit about the old playbook and mm. just try and figure out why that is broken and why the old playbook isn't working anymore so the revenue predict uh the predictable revenue model why is that broken and is doing more harm than good yeah sure so the predictable revenue model um is the you know, trendy B2B marketing and sales model uh, since the early 2000s that most B2B companies run on to some extent. Um, and basically it calls for, you know, marketing or for marketing, it calls for uh, prospecting, which is a type of marketing, um, which I consider to be spam. And we'll talk about that. But it calls for prospecting to be done full time by sales development as opposed mm -hmm. to historically it was done part-time by sales in addition to their actual sales job. And so for marketing, it basically says the core marketing strategy to which most resources or, you know, significant marketing resources will go into prospecting. That's going to be the way that we're going to generate and qualify leads for sales. Um, is that's the strategy and those are going to be the tactics. Um, and for sales, it calls for specializing the sales role into an assembly line of partial sellers. Um, you know, the AE for the initial sale, the sales engineer who actually does the demo and has product expertise, um, the customer success manager that handles expansion retention, and oftentimes there's further subdivisions um, within that. And so you've got this bloated sales org of partial sellers, buyer handoffs, um, and, you know, these sellers uh, who can only help the buyer with one aspect of the sales process, they have limited efficacy, they have limited expertise, they have limited accountability. So they make promises and then they hand the buyer off to someone else to fulfill them. Um, and it's a really lousy experience. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the same. It's never a good experience being just, uh, you know, uh, passed over from a guy to another and you have to tell your problem all over again. So. Exactly. And so that's the that's the essence of the predictive revenue model. And it is based on how Salesforce um, or aspects of what Salesforce did in the early 2000s um, as part of their broader marketing and sales efforts. So it's based on what some of what Salesforce did 
Um, and mm-hmm. it's debatable even then to what extent did it contribute to Salesforce's growth or not um, relative to other possibilities and given like other factors like the product and the market and the demand and the, the financing that they had and the other elements of the marketing sales. And so in any case, um, the the guy that created the predictable revenue model is Aaron Ross. And he codified, popularized um, this model um, in 2011. So 10 years, like basically 10 years after it was put into practice at Salesforce. Um, and it's 2022. And so B2B companies have been adopting this model, some of what Salesforce did in the early 2000s, which was questionable even then. Um, and it's 2022 and it really hasn't changed that much. And so really the predictable revenue model, um, you know, codified, popularized, fuels and preserves sales development as the core marketing strategy and the sales assembly line as the core sales strategy. Um, and so because of that, it gives, you know, that's the playbook. It gives this, it gives those two practices, the, you know, the semblance of necessity and respectability. Um, and that's why I think it's going to take a new model, the biocentric revenue model to displace it and a new book to displace it because people need a codification and understand what the problems are, why they're problematic, what the symptoms are, what's the evidence, what's the proof, what are the case studies, quotes, anecdotes, and they need to understand the solution. They need to understand why it's the solution. They need to understand what the benefits are, right? Just like any B2B sale, um, software sales, it's the same pitch over and over again. The old way is bad. Stop doing things manually, whatever. Or And then here's the new way. You're going to get more faster for less, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's shocking that B2B marketing and sales doesn't doesn't itself modernize. It doesn't itself question mm-hmm. um, what's the old way and then is there a new way. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome opportunity for companies, um, particularly younger companies, to get a huge competitive advantage in attracting talent and buyers alike to have a much better growth playbook um, and be able to grow more, uh, better, you know, faster uh, for less um, and be able to attract the talent that wants, that wants this model and that this could be like, hey, we are a biocentric revenue model company. Um, I think it's, so it's super attractive. Um, and I, I think especially now in the market that we're in where it's a bit of a down market, um, you know, when the market isn't so hot, um, as it is now, that forces people to rethink how they're, how they're using their resources and how they're going to market to get the most bang for their buck. Um, yep. And so, yeah, um, you know, even if you're a small company and you've got no brand awareness and very little money and very little financing, if you the companies that win nowadays uh, are those that have the best marketing and sales experience that produce the least amount of friction for the buyer and a great buying experience. So even if your competitors are entrenched and have a bigger brand or or have a, a better product or better pricing. Um, if you've got a better marketing and sales experience and you make it easier for them to buy, um, then you will have a huge competitive advantage and, and gain market share um, and be a powerhouse. And so then once you improve your product and your pricing gets better over time, it's like you're going to be unstoppable um, and mm-hmm. just be dominant. So yeah. Um, Marketing sales is the key differentiator in B2B now because it's easier now more than ever to build a product and products are often very undifferentiated. So someone comes out with a product, it's easy to kind of replicate that. And so, yeah, similar pricing, similar products, but it's where your marketing sales that really differs. It's just like Mm -hmm. if you're dating, right? All guys have, you know, hopefully 
10 fingers and 10 toes and two, you know, two eyes and a job. But what really is going to differentiate you in the dating market is your personality, is your brand, is your reputation, is your charisma, you know, your character. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for, for marketing, for, for companies um, and particularly um, for marketing, it's like, how are you communicating your message in the market? Um, How, how good at you at promotion is really the key nowadays. So, so yeah, it's the predictable revenue model um, that I challenge. And then in addition to that, we mentioned quote and commission, but they're aside from the predictable revenue model. I'll just wrap up and say that, you know, prospecting the sales assembly line, quote and commission, you know, these kind of four key issues, plus like artificially forcing buyers to sales. Um, these are primarily uh, sales problems, as I say, mm-hmm. but because they are advocated for by sales, um, pretty much exclusively, like Aaron Ross was a sales leader at Salesforce. He was not a marketer. Um, no marketers advocate for these things. Um, it's just sales folks. And um, it's sales who pounds the pavement, or sorry, it's sales who paves the way for sales development. Um, and we can talk about why that is, but it's not marketing. And it's actually marketing that's fighting against sales development and is trying mm-hmm. to liberate themselves from sales development. And I think that marketing has and will continue to be the vanguard of change, modernizing, liberating B2B. Um, and sales has and will largely fight a rear guard action to preserve these bad practices. But make no mistake, marketers, um, these are the problems you have to fight against. It's sales that you have to battle against primarily, these practices, because they harm you a lot. Um, and we can talk about all the ways in which that harms you. Um, but marketing has a bigger seat at the table now than sales because B2B companies are now marketing led, um, not sales led. Um, most of the buyer's decision to purchase is marketing influence. The buyer relies more on marketing than on sales. The buyer wants more marketing than sales. Um, buyers increasingly don't want to speak to sales as much, not until much later in their journey. Um, only when they explicitly want to, and sometimes not at all, as in the case of self-service. So they rely on marketing and um, marketing's influence on their peers. Um, And so, um, yeah, uh, that is why marketing can drive these shots and and should be able to. And so a large part of the book is to help marketers um, implement the change, implement the framework. Um, propose the business case and we'll talk about that and like how people can transition from the old practices to the new way, which I, which I outline. Um, but I, I do think that it will primarily be marketing at the Vanguard, although there are younger, um, typically younger sales leaders who like Sahil Mansouri, um, who are helping to lead the way and, and to try to modernize sales. Um, but that's a key, that's a key point to make, um, is that this fundamental shift in B2B, um, is, is primarily like technological. Um, and, and, and that's why we're kind of a little bit slow to adopt our people and our process to it. So in the pre-internet era, marketing didn't have, um, great ability to connect with buyers to like educate buyers and bring buyers to sales. So sales would go out to buyers and that was prospecting. Um, and so sales did prospecting part-time until the late 90s, early 2000s. That's when sales development hit the scene because they said, guys, sales cannot do prospecting part-time. <laughs> In addition to their actual sales job, it's too laborious. It's too miserable. It has to be done constantly in large quantities and predictably to amount to anything whatsoever. 
um, even if what amounts to is junk. Um, and so let's have sales development do it. And so, um, but nowadays, um, with the advances in, in the internet and the maturity of the internet with social media, with mobile phones, with marketing technology and, and software, MarTech with marketing know-how that's all changed and marketing can do a million and one tactics and, um, ways to connect with buyers, to build demand, to create awareness, to, you know, to, to create top of funnel, you know, awareness among 95% of buyers that aren't in the market, that aren't shopping and capture the 5% or so that are shopping that are in the market. Um, and, you know, build, build a reputation, all this type of stuff and bring buyers who are interested and connect them easily to sales through the website. And so all that, um, means that buyers like increasingly do not want prospecting they which i consider spam so prospecting um and it's very important for people to understand that it's a marketing strategy um to generate qualified leads for sales through telemarketing door knocking uh emailing linkedin direct messages um and physical mail and bribery via gift cards. Now, spam is unconsented marketing solicitations to a buyer's private inbox, their phone, their email, their LinkedIn, their home or work address. Um, and so, yeah, that's what prospecting is. Um, it's spamming buyers. And so um, that is why uh, it's so miserable to do prospecting. That's why sales hated doing it. That's why sales development hates doing it. Um, it's basically marketing while selling your soul. Um, and that's why buyers hate it on the receiving end. And um, increasingly, I think, you know, nowadays, especially with this change, uh, avoid prospecting, reject prospecting, get turned off by it. Um, and so they turn off, uh, sorry, turn off and tune out. Um, and there's data in the book to show that. Um, and, and that's why sales development is struggling today. Sales development is suffering high turnover, low tenure, low performance, low productivity, and low job satisfaction. Um, you know, many of them miss their meetings booked quota, let alone everything that happens after the meetings booked um, that matters. Um, and so uh, sales development is in really poor shape, um, but that's because prospecting is in poor shape. And I outline in the book that prospecting as compared to modern proper non-spam marketing um, is unnecessary and does more harm than good. It actually, and I talk about this in the book, it it harms marketing in four key ways. It handcuffs marketing, it preempts marketing, it counteracts marketing, and it crowds out marketing. So those are four symptoms, harmful effects of sales development upon marketing. And marketing is trying to liberate itself nowadays. Um, And you'll see this movement primarily led by folks like Chris Walker, who are trying to help marketers liberate themselves to do modern marketing. um, And they'll often try to you know, they fight against the effects of sales development upon marketing, where marketing has to generate constantly in large quantities, contact information of uninterested buyers, which is what MQLs are or marketing qualified leads. That's it. It's contact information of uninterested buyers. And marketing obtains that through gated content, which buyers hate and marketers hate to do because it's, it's, there's a lot of friction and buyers know that once they give their contact information it's probably going they're probably going to get spammed and so and whether marketing they don't sorry i was going to no, say no, that's go ahead, why jump they in. give you the, that's why they give you their personal email address or they just give you a dummy email address because they know they're going to you know open uh, the gated content in a new uh, browser and that's it so exactly they, so they give you, you they give you fake contact information or they just don't consume the content 
um, and oftentimes they know that content is going to be junk and marketing because marketing will produce junk content like junk events, junk, um, uh, you know, PDFs or whatever, or junk ads just to try to get your contact information. And it's a lousy mm -hmm. webinar or whatever. And so like buyers aren't going to engage in marketing's efforts because they know it's just you're just trying to do it with the intention of getting their contact information as opposed to producing really good content. Um, yeah, yeah. And that shows. And then marketing has to prioritize that contact information of uninterested buyers for SDRs because how do you how do you choose who to who to annoy with spam, and so that's where lead intent or or lead um, scoring comes into play where where basically marketing will assign these uninterested buyers a point score for sales development based on the extent that these buyers are engaging with marketing's efforts and who these buyers are their like title and demographics to assume the likelihood that these buyers eventually request to speak to sales as opposed to just generating website demo requests and these buyers saying, hey, I'd like to speak to sales, which is what I consider to be a real lead. A real lead is someone who comes to the website, raises their hand to speak to sales, marketing automatically qualifies them on the website with a few form questions and then enables a qualified buyer to book a time directly from a seller's calendar. Boom, you're done. Saving no, no, no. One time. Yeah, exactly. And not in this case. It's like, no, we're going to give, you know, and basically what then happens is so marketing prioritizes the contact information for sales development. Um, and so the, and these are, and, and then so the third, the third way that marketing is also handcuffed is through manual demo request and qualification. So if a buyer is interested and comes to the website and requests a demo to speak to sales because of sales development, um, the buyer has to go through this whole song and dance um, and all this friction with sales development. Um, where basically the buyer submits the form, the company says, we'll get back to you at some point, but we're not going to say when. The SDR will eventually send this person an email and or a telemarketing call out of the blue, and who knows if the buyer notices and picks it up or when they do, um, and then asks the buyer a battery of qualifying questions, which the buyer does not care to answer. Um, and then the buyer tries to get information from the SDR, but the SDR can't give them information either because they don't know or they overstep the seller. Um, and then there's all this back and forth scheduling to speak to sales. And then there's a handoff between SDR and sales. And then the salesperson asks the very same qualify, qualifying questions, which should not need to be asked again. And so basically 70% um, of the time that that happens, these buyers never make it to sales. And that's proven through statistics, through the companies that like automate this. Um, and when you do that also, it takes three times as long for these buyers to get to sales. And typically by then you're no longer the only vendor or the preferred vendor mm -hmm. because the buyer's like, screw this, like I'm not waiting, I'm gonna go fill out other, other demo requests, especially if there's no brand affinity, if there wasn't proper marketing. And so that's how marketing is handcuffed. Um, they're also preempted because Basically, the, the, the idea behind lead scoring and lead intent um, or MQLs nowadays, because even though marketing can just buy that contact information of uninterested buyers from data providers in bulk on the cheap at a fraction of the cost, they don't actually have to gate their content anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is, well, if marketing warms up these buyers, um, then that way sales development can then proactively spam them and turn some buyers off and push some buyers prematurely to sales, which is what happens. And so... Um, yeah, basically, um, before marketing can properly finish wooing these buyers with proper non-spam marketing, sales development comes in, um, and, and does the spam. And, uh, so, you know, you, 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 this buyer attends a webinar, they attend an event, and then immediately after they get spammed and all that credibility, all that goodwill that marketing produces, all, all that affinity it's just kind of goes out the window. So yeah, some buyers turn off and then some premature buyers who are 
uh, go to sales. Um, and we're going to talk about this because this is very, very important about why this is so bad, why premature buyers, why non-sales ready buyers go to sales. But we'll come back to that. Make sure to mm -hmm, follow up mm -hmm. if in case I forget. Um, I'll put the mental note. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> the that's the preemptive part. Um, and so now how is marketing counteracted? Well, because these buyers are some subset of buyers are turned off by spam and, and prospecting and sales development. Um, uh, and uh, some are pushed prematurely to sales, but that also damages your company's reputation. It damages your, your yeah. word of mouth, your positive word, word of mouth, and increases your negative word of mouth. And those are very important marketing assets. Like we all know how important a reputation is in business. We know it, how important it is in a personal life. Like you don't get to be successful annoying people or annoying your buyers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you want to win friends and influence people, to borrow Dale Carnegie's, you know, book title. Um, so you're not going to build a great marketing engine if if that's how you decide to 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 do that. And so, um, and you're not going to attract great marketing talent who just wants to be the handmaid into sales development and be on this MQL hamster wheel, as it's known, um, and just generate contact information so sales development can spam. Like, what marketer really wants to do that? And they don't. That's why the top marketers are fleeing into agency, freelance, and or you know. Um, to B to C because they're like, forget this. Like this is junk marketing. Is, um, yeah. It's it's uncreative. It's un, it's not as fulfilling. Um, and so you'll see at the you'll see at the same companies there's elements of marketing and there's elements of sales development. And what often happens is they blend the two together when they analyze their total marketing efforts. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so this brings me to my fourth symptom, which is the point about marketing being crowded out. Marketing and sales development are competing for marketing resources at the same company. They're competing for time, labor, and capital. Um, and sales development and prospecting is enormously time, capital, and labor intensive. The average cost of an SDR is one hundred thirty-five thousand um, a year. Plus, you factor in the fact that they turn there's high turnover, low tenure, low performance, low productivity, um, and low job satisfaction. Um, that's really harmful because turnover and the cost of backfilling is about one and a half, two times salary. Um, and then these are a potential talent that will grow in the company, and then you're, you're turning off a whole bunch of them. Basically. Uh, marketing can't do all the things that it wants to do and mm -hmm. um, it's forced to do the things that it doesn't want to do. And so, um, you know, marketers don't have all the resources they want to do the things that they should do because all that's getting waste on sales development and sales development mm -hmm. is incredibly expensive. So typically at companies you'll have basically like marketing, like probably like 50% 50, 50 of marketing is, is, is support is 50% of marketing's resources are spent having to, su to support sales development. Um, in the first place. And then so much marketing allocation resources or budget goes to sales development. And so sales development would typically have more headcount because it's more manual and laborious and like, and fruitless. And so you're going to have um, just enormous headcount um, in sales development, um, plus all the management and leadership, everything that goes into constructing the department of sales development, all the tools, the processes, the compensation, lead routing, um, you know, all that type of stuff. And so um, imagine if all of that got diverted and repurposed into marketing, which is what I, which is what I recommend. So I say all of this because, um, I, I, you know, again, I think marketing is, is at the forefront right now. And, um, it's these, these, these harm marketing tremendously, um, which is why we're seeing marketing trying to fight back. It's just marketing. It doesn't have the, I think the, the, the intellectual ammunition to, present an alternative and a pathway to get from the old model to the new way, which is what I'm trying to provide to them. I think uh, they get some of it from folks like Chris Walker, 
um, but not enough. Um, and so, yeah, um, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll pause there because I know that was a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts or where you want to take things. Yeah, yeah, quite uh, a lot of uh, useful information to unpack. I do want to uh, also pause and say that any interaction someone has with your company is still branding. So if you're, uh, you know, investing a lot into building a lovable brand, but then you chase people on LinkedIn, over the phone, over email, then all of that great effort is just, you know, gone down the drain or I don't know <laughs> exactly the English expression for this. So any interaction we have, you have, including prospecting, that's also branding. And I think that's super important for companies to uh, to realize. And where I want to take um, our conversation is if so many, you know, if prospecting is harm and, you know, it's wasting resources because, you know, you see uh, every year those stats where uh, the, the efficiency of prospecting is going down. You need this many touches to uh, speak to a potential buyer. Uh, why don't com companies move away from that model uh, faster? And then the second part is how do you make the transition? Because it seems to me that it's a sort of a chicken and egg kind of situation. If um, so much of your uh, company's resources go into prospecting, um, how do you transition to something that's not prospecting and that you think it's working, but you don't have, you know, you haven't done it before and as you were seeing the example with the monkey if you haven't caught on the to the next branch <laughs> it's very difficult to let go of the the old one uh so yeah let's let's start from here why don't companies yeah, sure. uh, move away faster and how do they do it yeah sure and before i address how companies transition i just want to make one more thing which we talked about at the beginning of the conversation which is the short term versus the long term um and let mm -hmm. me just say mm -hmm. for marketing um if the goal of your marketing is to generate as many lousy leads at all costs, regardless of profitability, regardless of lead quality, regardless of its harm on sales or its harm on marketing, um, regardless of efficiency, regardless of effectiveness, if that's your goal, then prospecting sales development and spam is immeasurably superior and that's what you should pursue because that will work better in the short term and in the long term in harming your company, in harming marketing, harming sales, and harming your reputation, in harming word of mouth. Um, now contrast that with proper modern non-spam marketing. Think of it like investing, um, financial investing, where you get linear growth, it goes up and up and up, and then it, there's a certain point where it is exponential um, from compounding mm -hmm. yield. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it's the same thing we get in our personal life. It's the same thing we get in any successful human endeavor. You go to the gym, um, you know, it, it's like you get progress, progress, progress. And then, you know, you're hitting like peak performance, um, and you start to get the, you start to get the compounding yield. Um, and think about it. Like uh, if you're an, an owner of a company, it takes you like building a company is a long-term process and requires a long-term mindset and goals and metrics. Um, if you're trying to build a product, like your software team, um, product team, uh, whatever coders, developers, that takes time and requires a long-term mindset. Um, there's no shortcut to success. Um, and that is why companies have long-term goals and metrics. That's why departments have annual long-term goals and metrics so that they don't have a short-term mindset and they avoid all the pitfalls of having a short-term mindset. So if you want to be a good parent, if you want to be a good athlete, if you want to be a good owner, um, you want to be a good marketer, you want to be a good sales leader, 
then you need to have a long-term mindset and goals to achieve any successful human endeavor. Um, um, so that's one thing. Now, uh, we'll talk about, you know, in the book, I kind of outline proper marketing and, uh, and what that looks like today, what all the different tactics are today, um, you know, in depth that oftentimes people don't know. People don't realize this. And this is true of my own transformation. Like when I was in sales development and sales, I had no idea what marketing did. I thought marketing just has a website, blogs, and like, you know, some ads, and they sprinkle some, some fairy dust, as, as Chris Walker says. <laughs> yeah, and then that's it. And then somehow buyers like get to sales. I don't know. Um, and, and I'm, you know, it wasn't until I put on the marketing hat and gone into the marketing world that I realized all the things that marketing can and should be doing and... Um, can't really have the freedom to do nowadays because of the straitjacket that the predictable revenue model puts us in and quota and commission puts us in. So, um, you know, if you do marketing right um, and I lay out, it is so much better in the short term and the long term. And I saw this when I was at, and I, and I lay out case studies for this at, at, in the book, at companies in depth and what they did, how they realized, why and how they realized that sales development was harmful, um, cause you know, and then how they, uh, compared it to marketing and then how they transitioned, what they did instead with proper marketing and then what the benefits were. And then, um, you know, what the, what the, what the results at the end of the day and where those companies are now. And I saw this when I was at user gems and I saw the power of proper marketing there and we didn't have sales development. We didn't have spam and the company with no market awareness, no font, no money really in six people during a pandemic was able to grow in 4x annual revenue and, and decrease our, our sales cycle, increase our win rates and raise money. And like, we only had six people and it was, it was like, you know, so if you do, if you do proper marketing, it will win. Now, the question is, um, how do you, how does company, how do companies transition? How do you transition from the old way to the new way? How do you transition yep. from the predictive revenue model, from prospecting, from the sales assembly line, from quota commission, artificially forcing buyers to sales, uh, to the buyer centric revenue model? Um, and so I outline this in the book, um, where you basically take a, uh, a experimental framework to propose business cases to, uh, ownership and leadership where you take a compare test, uh, and gradual transition approach, um, where you, okay. you know, you prove with data and you, you know, you run some experiments and then once you prove that, then you, you take steps and essentially, um, what you do is, uh, the first thing is you compare um, sales from prospect sales development to marketing. And so you compare the leads to the leads for marketing. In other words, prospecting leads versus marketing's website demo requests. And then you compare mm -hmm. that to real metrics that we talked about before. Profit, revenue, number of customers, number of opportunities, dollar amount of opportunities, win rate, uh, sales cycle, average selling price, all that good stuff. Uh, you know, historical look, 12, 24 months. Um, and and you know, use your CRM data, to, you know, look in the past and the, you know, um, and then present that data, um, to ownership. And basically what you're going to see is which side your bread is buttered on, um, and where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And so for example, Cognizant did this, um, you know, Cognizant is a large mm -hmm. prospecting yep. software company, ironically. Um, and they saw that mm -hmm. their prospecting leads like closed at something like, you know, 0 0.1, 0.2%, but their marketing's website demo requests closed at 4%. So why would you invest all your, uh, all your resources, um, into prospecting, um, and sales development. And so they shifted, uh, they were able to shift a lot of uninterested buyers to marketing, being able to focus on website demo requests, large part of their budget, um, from marketing, having to support prospecting with 
contact information. And the same thing happened at Sales Whale, another prospecting software company, where they basically realized that that sales event was unnecessary and doing more harm than good. They they saw that the the these lead they were generating a lot of meetings, but these meetings, you know, people weren't showing up. They weren't buying. They weren't buying as fast. It just wasn't worth the cost. Um, and even the customers that came from it were junk customers that often churned and that most of sales whales growth had actually come from their proper non-spam marketing. And so what they did is they sales development into marketing and they basically sunset sales development entirely shifted resources away from, uh, marketing into sales development, sorry, away from and repurpose sales development into, into marketing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's the first thing is you compare sales development to marketing. I go through that in the book and step-by-step step how you need to do that. And then you take that data, you go to, um, you know, and look, if they don't work out, we'll just go back to the way things are. But, um, given this ownership and leadership, um, and you say, I'd like to propose two experiments data. The first experiment that I want to do is I want to automate website demo requests and scheduling directly on the website. Um, and there's pl plenty of, of software companies to help you do that. Um, and basically what you do is you repurpose your sales development into marketing. So whatever excess sales development capacity that you have, who's doing that, they get repurposed into marketing, which SDRs will be thrilled. They get to do proper marketing. Um, and uh, you give your SDRs the extent that, you know, you're repurposing them quota and commission relief. In other words, you, you take care of their pay, their, their goals and their metrics and their compensation. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the first experiment. You run that for a few sales cycles. And what you're going to see is that, um, you're going to get two to three times more demos and you're going to get way more, uh, revenue and your sales cycles will decrease. Um, and you butcher that whole process. So this is massive low hanging fruit for Marcus. And, um, these are people who are knocking on the door, right? Requesting a demo to speak to sales and you're fumbling it right now. So you're spending all this money to get people to knock on your door. And then when they answer, you're not there. Marketers who want to increase their revenue and increase their pipeline. And for sales who are trying to meet their goal, automate that on the website with goals like, this is where companies really need to prioritize. And it's such a simple fix The with the, you know, on the demo request form, a few qualification questions, enable qualified buyers to book a time directly from a seller's calendar and, and for unqualified buyers, um, refer them to better fit vendors in exchange for a referral fee and vice. Mm. Um, and your buyers will really appreciate that. And if those buyers do become a good versa, so create a bit of a referral program for unqualified buyers, it's great. You get to have referral partnerships and increase your revenue fit. Guess what? They're going to come back to you. So, yeah. um, that's a that's a that's a uncommon thing but you can really cash in on that anyway so you measure that for a few sales cycles and then you show the results hey great our our meeting uh our meeting held rate increased our conversion rates increased our win rate increased and then we saved a whole bunch of money and we repurposed sdrs to marketing and they did all this fun good stuff and they helped us do x y and z and it was great perfect ownership should should uh, with that data be able to permanently sunset the inbound SDR or the SDRs that help with manual demo request qualification scheduling and you automate that great the second experiment um, is to gradually reduce prospecting activities you know your telemarketing your email spam your LinkedIn spam um, your bribery via gift cards and prospecting quota or like your your monthly goal and calls a month or sorry a day um, metric um, by 25% increments. So if your SDRs are making 100 telemarketing mm -hmm. calls, they should make 75 telemarketing again into marketing. Um, and the SDRs will be thrilled because many of them are trying to do proper not. And uh, if they've got 10 meetings a month that they have to book or 10 appointments set for sales a month, they should make eight. And you repurpose that excess capacity on spam marketing, but they can't because they're for email spam. Um, you know, 
prospecting activity quotas. They have to make telemarketing calls. They have to send force to because of prospecting and their and their uh, and their quota and uh, their and physical mail spam. And so um, you give them quota and commission relief accordingly. Um, and then again, you run that experiment over the duration of a few sales cycles. So you can track first of all, and this is important. So you track your results for a long term time frame. So you have enough, right? That's why we have annual goals, right? We have annual long term goals so that we can that we statistical evidence um, and you account for short term seasonality and fluctuation, ebbs and flows. Um, you can gauge long term trends and you can ensure repeatable success mm -hmm. because when you run this, sometimes you'll figure stuff out to avoid that short term mindset. So, um, and in doing so, you run this for a few sales cycles and you should take that data to, to uh, ownership and leadership. And you should say, hey, this proves the superior efficacy of proper non-spam modern marketing over um, sales development slash prospecting slash spam. Um, you repeat the experiment with another 25%. And what should happen is you could either do marketing and you repurpose um, to 50% or just fully sunset sales development um, and prospecting that, uh, yeah, sales development into marketing, um, or, uh, marketing and also operations or sales, whatnot, but it, but you keep that talent, repurpose that talent, liberate that talent, that sales development talent. The talent is good. It's just a function. The role is bad. Um, and you'll get more productivity, uh, out of them elsewhere. Um, and so, but I think the easiest transition is into marketing. And so that's how you get from A to B now, um, that addresses mm -hmm. sales development and the sales assembly line. Um, I'm sorry, that's, that addresses sales development. Now for the sales assembly line, um, this is primarily where sales leaders need to step in and CROs, not necessarily marketing, although marketing should be influencing sales to do this and helping to be part of the this committee to, to do that. Um, where basically what you do as a sales leader, something similar to that experiment, where you analyze the state of your current sales department um, you know, what's your turnover? What's your, the tenure of the sellers? What's mm -hmm. their performance? What's their job satisfaction? Um, how much does the sale, how much does the sales or cost across, you know, tools, benefits and org across AE, CSMs, the whole like kit and caboodle because you got a bloated sales org. Um, and uh, basically um, propose, uh, so take that data um, and, uh, you know, also include like your holistic goals and metrics. So look at profit, look at win rate, look at sales cycle, look at average selling price, um, you know, go into your CRM and try to gauge that, try to gauge your churn, your customer satisfaction score, get all your metrics together that you can go to ownership and leadership and say, Hey, like probably our sales development order could be much better. It's maybe it's not looking too good. I would like to propose an experiment, either an AB test or whatever, but it's like, I would like to, um, repurpose some of my sellers from partial assembly line sellers into complete full sellers. AECSM combined, no handoffs, no prospecting with proper goals and metrics and full salary plus bonus. Um, because it does not make sense to do that without having proper goals, metrics and compensation for sellers. So, um, and then, you know, either repurpose some of your AEs to become AECSM combined or repurpose some of your CSMs to become AECSM combined. So either an AE holds on to some of their customers or a CSM, um, you know, helps some buyers with the initial sale and then holds on to them. And so track the results of that experiment for a couple of sales cycles and see how things shake out. Um, mm -hmm. I also forget, in addition to qu uh, quantitative metrics, um, in both experiments for sales development and sales assembly line, you should always get qualitative data from 
your customers from your buyers about how they like sales development and prospecting versus proper non-spend marketing, what actually influenced them to buy. I kind of lay these out in the book as well to include in addition to the quantitative stuff. But the same thing for sales, like find out how your buyers like the sales assembly line versus if they were to have a, a, a full seller, speak to your sellers, sellers about this, speak to marketing about this. Basically, you get feedback from all your key stakeholders. And, and it, you know, and so in both experiments, yeah. you do this and I lay out the questions that you can ask all the stakeholders, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah. And so basically in, with that, awesome. um, wow. you know, you're able to kind of prove the superior efficacy of full sales cycle sales over a sales assembly line and then either repeat the experiment with more sellers or gradually sunset um, the sales assembly line. And uh, there are companies who, uh, you know, are currently doing this or have already full sales cycle sales uh, in place. I mentioned a whole bunch of them in the book. There's a whole bunch of them that I'm not aware of. And I hope to become aware of more as people start to share the talk about this stuff. Obviously, the intimacies of companies B2B marketing and sales um, aren't public knowledge. Like I can't just go in and just look at stuff and compare stuff. So I think more of this analysis will mm -hmm. come to light over time. Um, and I hope that you know, people will share the results of these experiments in the buyer-centric revenue Slack community that's that's coming up. Um, and I hope to highlight more companies, and it, you know, who, who've done this transition publicly. Um, but that's essentially the, the thrust of, of how to get out of the predictable revenue model, out of sales development and the sales assembly line to the buyer-centric revenue model. A similar experiment is proposed for quota and commission, which again is not the fault of the predictable revenue model. That's just the fault of sales for many years. Um, and so, but it's kind of the same from since forever, I guess. Yeah, but it's very important because just very briefly on quoting commission, just to address this briefly, the purpose of quoting commission is to instill a short term mindset on sales to pressure sell buyers. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the goal. It's to pressure sell buyers. Um, and you do that with a short term partial uh, goal and metric that's tied to 50% of your salary, which is what commission is. And so that is the whole purpose. And that short term mindset is incredibly harmful to sales, um, to the talent, to to buyers who feel that short term mindset in the form of pressure selling. Um, you know, uh, uh, and we all know what pressure selling is, um, you know, that could, you know, you could um, annoy buyers and be very aggressive in your communication, you, in your follow-ups, you can omit and obscure relevant facts, you can, you know, over-promise and under-deliver, all that type of stuff. And that's really harmful on the organization because then you bring on bad fit customers that create a lot, that suck in a lot of churn, churn and they, they take time away from customer, you know, from customer support or customer service. Um, the, yeah, the product team often has to, has to like build the, these, all these features that the salesperson promised. And so it takes away from the product team doing their, their actual roadmap. So it's just a nightmare to bring on bad fits. It's garbage in garbage out. Um, and so that also causes sales to pressure marketing to pressure market buyers in the form of spam and prospecting. So, mm -hmm. so quoting commission, and I lay out, there's seven key reasons why sales leaders are pro prospecting and um, in the book. And one of them is quote and commission, which creates that short-term mindset of desperation. And then so they, they, in desperation, they go to marketing and they say, please push, give me as many lousy leads right now as fast as possible, regardless of the cost or consequences. So if you use a basketball analogy, and I use this in the book, um, think of marketing as the point guard and sales is the center. So it's marketing's job to do all this like creative fun stuff and like do all these dribbles to then set up the center for an easy pass right by the net, um, safely away from the competition. And all the sender has to do is tap it in and like slam dunk it. And right now what marketing 
because of, you know, uh, the predictive revenue model, whatever, because of all those seven different reasons why prospecting sales development um, are, are pressuring sales to pressure, pressure marketing to pressure buyers, um, you're getting marketing being forced to uh, make as many lousy passes to the center right now, regardless of the cost. So the point card marketing is very unhappy, can't do their thing, um, gives lousy passes to sales. Sales is taking blind half court shots, which it shouldn't be taking because of all these premature buyers. And so they miss most of those shots. Sales win rates are very low. Sales cycles are very long. The cost per acquisition is very high. You have a bloated sales org because the sales assembly line. Plus you have a bloated sales org to triage a ton of bad premature non-sales ready leads from sales development. Um, and so you're wasting enormous sales resources. Um, because yeah, you need a lot of people to take half court shots in order for those things to go in, as opposed to one person of a good center to slam dunk those layups in. And that's what sales wants. Sales wants hot leads and layups. They do not want buyers that are just kicking the tires. And that's what happens with prospecting. Yeah. Prospecting produces tire kickers and people who are just browsing because these buyers are not very well informed. They're just curious. They're being pushed prematurely to sales. Um, whereas marketing's website demo requests, in contrast, it, where marketing does proper non-spam marketing, are buyers that are well-informed and are seriously undertaking a purchasing decision. So they're more likely to buy, to buy faster, all that good stuff, and at less cost. Um, so go, uh, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, so that's the same experiment is available for quota and commission. And that, again, is primarily in sales' ballpark. But marketing really needs to like get that in front of sales and work with the CRO. Marketing should really be driving this. Um, and again, marketing has a huge seat at the table. Um, and if sales does not drive this, then sales will become extinct and have an ever-decreasing um, role at the table. Um, and so it's a huge advantage for marketing and sales leaders mm -hmm. who also um, not only want to liberate their teams, like um, make your sales team happier, uh, more fulfilled, more productive, and the same for marketing, but it's a great opportunity for marketing and sales leaders to further their career. Because if you're a leader and you know how to implement the buyer-centric revenue model, like 20 years ago, if you knew how to implement the predictive revenue model, you became somewhat more attractive to companies, but not physically, just, you know, you were you were just more uh, profitable as a leader. As an yeah, so it's like, I think this will be like, we're, you know, I can help you implement the buyer-centric revenue model playbook, get the people process technology together, build a team and attract people who want to work at a proper company and, um, I think that'll also attract investors to the company because investors will look at this company and say, ah, oh, this company's on the right growth model playbook and, and uh, investment capitalists will want to run this playbook because they get to deploy their capital more productively across their portfolio as opposed to wasting it in, you know, on the predictive revenue model and on the quote and commission. So um, that, in essence, is the the way to get from A to B, this, this test-prove gradual transition approach to sunset these bad practices in favor mm -hmm. of superior ones. I, I love it. I love it because, you know, we as humans are not making big changes just like that. It doesn't happen. We would love to, but it doesn't happen. You just need to make the smallest step. And then once that feels natural, take the next one. So yeah, definitely love it. And you also answered, um, sort of an partially answered a question I had in the back of my mind as is, why is it that bad to, you know, push people that are not ready for a sales conversation? Why is that harmful to um, push them? And I also want to, you, you mentioned a bit earlier, and I hope to go a bit uh, deeper into this. Why do you think is uh, sales that's going to be at the 
forefront of this change? Why do you think it's marketing uh, that's going to drive the change and not, you know, sales or marketing and sales? Yeah, sure. Uh, so why do you think that and is? I told you I'd get I'd, I'd come I'd come back to why prospecting leads were junk and how that harms uh, <laughs> how that harms sales. And so, you know, sales is an alleged beneficiary of prospecting. Um, and in fact, sales is an alleged beneficiary of these bad practices. Um, you know, of prospecting of the sales assembly line of quota and commission, but actually they're, they're the most harmed by it, um, followed by everyone else. And unfortunately, um, sales is the largest advocate for these practices. Again, Aaron Ross was a sales leader at Salesforce. Quota and commission, um, you know, those are sales problems. Mm-hmm. Marketing does not have quota and commission. If marketing did, or if any other department did, they would they would be uh, they would quit. Um, and so, and I break down quoting commission in the book in detail as well, um, and expose that and all the arguments for them and against them and all the, all the companies that have seen the light. And so case studies galore, so lots of evidence and proof in this book. And I make it very clear to people where, you know, I use legal terminology and the standards of proof. I tell people where I have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. I have, I tell people where I have evidence that's clear and compelling. And I tell people where I have evidence that's a preponderance of evidence I share that evidence. I say, like, look, I, I'm one person. I, I, I don't have all the access to. I'm not God. I don't have. I can't peer into every single company and look into their marketing sales. And we'll get that more evidence over time. Um, but yeah, so it, it's sales that has been advocating these these practices. These are primarily like sales practices, um, and sales is very, very. Um, they haven't modernized as much as marketing because they haven't, um, they haven't, you know, marketing was forced to modernize faster than sales because of buyer preferences, um, which mm-hmm. I call, you know, again, the model is the buyer centric revenue model. And so if we, again, if we think about what happened with the change of the internet and social media and mobile phones and technology and marketing know-how buyers rely more on marketing to influence their purchasing decision and marketing's influence on their peers than they do on sales. They don't want sales as much, not too much later, only when they explicitly want to, and sometimes not at all in the case of self-service. Um, and so um, sales has not caught up to that fact. B2B companies have not caught up to that fact. B2B companies are still acting as if it was it was 1980, and they're, and they're acting as if they should be sales-led. And they still have these mistaken notions. It's not like these practices are good, and they were good in the 1980s. I mean, like, maybe you can say that prospecting was was good then because marketing didn't have the ability it had then that it has now. But quote and commission are not. And I expose that it's there. It's it's they're like, they are I, all these practices, I argue are not only unnecessary, but do more harm than good. So even if you think they do some good, there's way more harm. And I make that case in the book and I pro- and I try to prove that um, and offer alternatives for that. Um, but yet yeah, it's sales that advocates for them pretty much exclusively. You do not see marketers advocating for prospecting or the sales assembly line or quota or commission. That is sales. Um, and so, yeah. um, but it's marketing um, that has the bigger seat at the table. It's, it's, it's marketing that sh- companies should be marketing led. Um, so there's this notion right now of like product led, um, which applies to some, th- some proper mm-hmm. non-spam mm-hmm. marketing that marketing can do nowadays, which is buyer self-service, which is one of many things that proper non-spam marketing entails. And it's, it's completely wrong to say that's a product-led thing. That is a marketing-led thing. It's marketing that gets buyers into the product to some extent and gives the buyers the information um, to become users or, or to try the product to some extent for free or whatever, or to buy now. Buyer self-service, you know, free trial, freemium, demo recording, product tour, sandbox environment, 
that is all marketing um, that is bringing those people in. Obviously, the product team builds the product, but it's it, that's a so it's a it's a misnomer to say it's product led. Um, but yeah, companies B two B companies need to be marketing led. Um, they need to invest more, I would say, in marketing than in sales. It's marketing that precedes sales hierarchically and chronologically. Um, the predictable revenue model was right in one sense, which is um, the key to predictable revenue and growth is predictable pipeline is leads. You need to have a sufficient amount of quality leads, mm -hmm. but that's marketing pipeline. Um, and what they got wrong is they thought that the best way to get marketing pipeline for sales. And, the, and this was, again, this was like the best way for a company to grow and the best thing for sales. And you can ask any sales leader is a sufficient amount of quality leads. Every center wants a ton of great passes to slam dunk it in the hoop. And the more that they get, the more points that they score. Yeah. So, um, Everyone wants the great point guard in their team, right? Everyone wants uh, what, what was it, LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, you know, the the great dribbler. Everyone wants the star marketers who make their lives uh, makes this the the center shine. You know, it's a team, and everyone wants to be on a winning team. No one wants to be on losing teams, and no one wants to lose to the competition. Um, so, um, yeah, um, be be marketing led. That's the key. That's the real key yes. uh, change, um, and that's why sales is on the back foot, and sales doesn't want to modernize. There's also, I would say, you know, I outlined some of the reasons why it's difficult for companies to change. Obviously, like with anyone who changes from from the old way to the new way, there's inertia. There's like, ah, it's familiar to us. I mean, we know this from software sales, right? We try to tell our buyers, hey, buy our software or our widget. The old way sucks. The new way is superior, and the buyers like. You know, I really like my spreadsheets. I like my pen and paper. And like, you have to go through and show like, <laughs> what's the cost of that? What What's the opportunity cost? What's the cost? You know, how do you get from A to B? Um, and what are the benefits? And, um, you know, and so, yes, there's going to be some pain in the short term of trying to like go through this. But actually, you'll be better off in the short term, midterm and long term as you go through this. Um, it's just like, look, you have a B2B companies have a really bad marketing and sales diet really, really bad marketing sales diet, and you expose yourself to a massive competitive risk to mm -hmm. a company that has a better marketing sales diet. Um, and so get rid of the junk food in your diet and go all in on the healthy, good, proper food because it's like, you know, performance. And so it's like, same thing with a, or a pair of shoes. It's like, you got an old pair of shoes you wear around the house. It gets you from A to B. Um, and again, it's not like B2B companies are going bankrupt. They are growing despite these bad practices. And the key is despite these bad practices. Um, but if you have a new pair of shoes that can make all the difference, like, you know, every performance athlete, you know, you can get much further, faster, uh, all that good stuff. So that's why marketing is at the forefront. And we can see that, you know, anecdotally with proof from, let's say, Chris Walker and the marketing movement that's happening. He's helping to lead a marketing movement to liberate themselves mm -hmm. from the effects of yeah. sales development that we talked about, how the preempted, counteracted, credit, all that good stuff. Um, but it's not enough. They talk there they have been unable to land a knockout blow and make significant progress because they don't have a model to or a different branch to swing to. And they haven't attacked the root cause of the problem, which is sales development and the sales assembly line and quoting commission. They just, they, they will attack some of the effects of, um, you know, of, uh, of sales development. And for example, they'll say lead generation versus demand generation. So it, yeah. And, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and know, it's so vague and unconvincing <laughs> and it's it, confusing because basically what this means is lead generation refers to marketing having to support sales development with contact information of uninterested buyers or marketing qualified lead. That's the MQL hamster wheel. Whereas demand generation refers to marketing having the freedom and the ability to generate real leads, which are website demo requests, um, hand raisers, buyers that request speak to sales. Um, but that's only one aspect of the whole picture. That's just like the generating contact information is one symptom that sales development has upon marketing. And what kind of CEO wants to hear marketing doesn't want to generate leads when that's the purpose of marketing? That's the essence of marketing. Marketing generates leads, passes the ball, and sales slam dunks mm-hmm. it. And so, yes, marketing builds demand and awareness and community. Da, da, da. That's I'm not taking away from marketing, but just like in the essence, it's like you generate leads. And so marketers are all about having the right positioning and messaging. Marketers do not have the right positioning and messaging to liberate themselves um, to do proper non-spam marketing. They need to challenge sales development. They need to propose an alternative. They need to have an experimental framework to get to A to B and then prove it and take an incremental approach. And that's the way that you're going to 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 do that. So unless you do that, we're gonna, you know, we're not gonna make significant progress and we're gonna be stuck. You know, they say that B2B lags behind B2C by 10 years or so. Um, well, maybe we need to ditch the old playbook, the predictable revenue model and quota and commission that's been around since the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And do you still think that the old playbook and prospecting and the SDRs, um, does it still work for some companies, at least, you know, maybe early stage startups just getting started? You already mentioned you work for a startup with six people doing great things, uh, doing little or no prospecting at all but do you think that there are some use cases for prospecting still or is it time to kind of you know um pull the cover and just call it quits what do you think yeah like the way i see it um and again it it simplifies things if you just call prospecting what it actually is which is spam so if you were to say to me um as a younger company is spam good i would say spam is even more harmful Um, at a younger company than it is at a more mature company with an established brand that has also in addition to, because again, most companies have elements of both proper non-spam marketing Mm -hmm. and spam Mm -hmm. and sales development and prospecting. And so at a bigger company that has a big marketing engine that does a lot of proper non-spam marketing, they also do a lot of, they also have, it's like, it's it's, again, your diet, you have, you eat a lot of healthy food and then you eat a lot of junk food and companies have mixed elements and they tend to lump them together. Part of the analysis I'd recommend in the experiment is to separate the two elements out. You compare sales development to marketing against objective, proper metrics, and then you see which side your bread is buttered on. Um, but yeah, it's way more harmful for a younger company. When you, you as a younger company, you need to do proper marketing because you need to build your awareness and your and your demand and your uh, reputation, which you don't have, but your bigger competitors do, and you don't have the resources and the money, the time, capital, and labor to waste on prospecting sales development. Um, so you need to, from day one, invest in proper marketing, like you invest in a proper product as you will invest in proper operations and proper HR and proper finance. Um, and so, um, you know, it, do the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Um, fix the roof when the sun is shining, not when it's raining. And right now, a lot of companies, because given the market downturn, um, are suffering. And, and beca- that's because they they didn't plant those trees and the sun is not shining anymore and it's raining. And they there was a lot of malinvestment in these bad practices. There was a lot of bad money going after these bad practices. Um, and so there is a bubble in sales development. And I'm not the only one pricking it, but the air is starting to come out of that bubble and don't be the one 
holding the bag when that when that comes out as a company or as investment capitalists, like place your bets elsewhere. Um, so I would say it uh, prospecting is not good for anyone. Now I cover this in the book. There's one demographic that benefits from prospecting. These are the only beneficiaries from prospecting. And those are the people that sell prospecting mm -hmm. software and services. They are the prospecting peddlers. Um, and ironically and logically, they are not successful because of prospecting, but despite prospecting, they are successful because of the proper non-spam marketing efforts. So they market prospecting, not with prospecting, but with proper non-spam marketing. They do things, you know, content, social media, events, ads, partnerships, uh, community marketing, affiliate marketing, referral marketing, networking. They have a great website and they have... Um, buyer sell service to some extent, they remarket to previous buyers and users that change jobs, they remarket to people that spoke to sales but didn't buy and things changed. And so that's a that's a recycle campaign. They remarket to customer accounts that churned um, for one reason or another, but then things change. And so that's a win back campaign. Um, and I lay out a ton of these marketing tactics in the book. And then not only that, I expose these prospecting peddlers, whether they're, they're consultants, agencies, tech vendors, um, you know, the outsource SDR agencies or outsource prospecting agencies and prospecting spam software companies. Um, I show all the different examples of them and I sh and, and and of all their proper non-spam marketing that they do and that it's actually their proper non-spam marketing that contributes to their growth and to their profits in spite mm -hmm. of their prospecting. And even though they're selling you basically snake oil. Um, so it's like a Trojan horse, right? Inside the Trojan horse is prospecting. On the outside, the nice horse is proper yeah. non-spam marketing. And that's how they get into your company. And They're not so, eating their own dog um, food you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> they, that's right. And so they don't eat their own dog food. And it is dog food. That's what prospecting spam is. But fortunately, the taste of their marketing champagne washes out the, ta the, the taste of the, of, the, of the dog food. And I think companies like SalesWell and, and Cognizant, which are prospecting software companies, realize this. And it's... And, and it's like, even though the prospecting software companies who market to people that do prospecting, they realized what's drove it, driving most of their growth and profits and their efficiency and effectiveness and ROI is their proper non-spam marketing, even though the proper non-spam marketing was a smaller amount than all their prospecting. And they had dedicated most of their resources to, to spam. Um, and so once they made that shift, they saw all these amazing results. Now, I'll also mention as an example, um, which I think is, is one of the best examples I include in the book of this. Outreach.io bought Sales Hacker in 2018. Outreach.io is one of the premier prospecting software companies in the market. Um, and so why did they buy Sales Hacker in 2018? I have Do you no know why? Clue. For content? Yeah, so... I don't know. Um, yeah, it, well, basically, so Sales Hacker um, is, it, or was, like the, the world's largest B2B sales community and content oh, so and social media engine. Um, they were like a media company. And so, uh, you know, Sales Hacker uh, had um, so many sales people's eyeballs, so many sales development people's eyeballs. Um, and, you know, Sales Hacker was a, a company that grew just from a few people um, to build this amazing audience of salespeople through proper marketing. So they were a sales company built through proper marketing. Um, and I speak to Gaetano Denardi about this, who's the VP of marketing. Um, yeah. You know, Gaetano and Chris Walker were on the State of Demand Gen podcast. I got a lot of people know him. He's probably like the number two influencer in the marketing world. Or maybe number three, the Dave, Her <laughs> Dave Gearhart, Chris Walker, and Gaetano are like the, the three musketeers, you know, um, at least from my perspective. Um, but you know, basically what they did is they, they built this great community. Um, you know, they would do meetups and events and conferences. Plus they had this 
uh, blog where any marketing or sales leader or marketing or sales influencer or thought leader can go write content, unbiased content, non-promotional about how to do how to do sales. You know, a lot of it was prospecting content, how to do telemarketing, how to structure your sales org, how to structure your sales assembly line, how to do quoting, commission, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, yeah, they had like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of visitors to their website. They had lots of community members. Um, you know, and so in 2018, um, the founder of Outreach.io, the C founder and CEO, Manny Medina, said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He basically said something like, the biggest problem that we have in the market right now is that no one knows who we are. We have a big awareness problem, um, and that's why we bought Sales Hacker. So you have Outreach.io, which was founded four years prior in 2014, who has a massive awareness problem amongst people that do prospecting and they sell prospecting software, which basically, and the prospecting software, for those of you who don't know, enables SDR to manage all their spam, all the different spam types, how, how often they spam their buyers to all the different buyers, the content of the spam, the duration of the entire spam campaign. Because again, yeah, spam is so laborious. You have to do it constantly in large quantities to get anything. So you need a way to manage that. So that's what they do. And so they needed marketing to market their prospecting software company, but they didn't have it. So they bought it through Sales Hacker. And in addition to Sales Hacker, they do a ton of proper non-spam marketing. Manny Medina, for instance, is very active on LinkedIn doing a lot of social media marketing um, and content marketing. Um, Scott Barker hosts their podcasts and their partnerships. And so they bring in a lot of, you know, do a lot of co-marketing and influencer marketing and stuff like that. Um, Sam Nelson, their sales development leader, basically does a lot of LinkedIn content and social media content, and he dyed his hair blue to stand out. Um, you know, you've got people like there, Max Altschuler, who was the CEO of Sales Hacker and was brought on as part of the acquisition to uh, Outreach.io, and he wrote books and you know is is does social media and content, and so you can see that at many different companies. And I saw this when I was at user gems because I was working with sales development teams and I was working with marketing teams at the same companies. Um, I could see these patterns of at every company that I've ever worked at and at other companies and everything that I was observing where it was proper non-spam marketing that was driving the growth and profits and the brand and the affinity and the demand. And it was sales development that was mm -hmm. counteracting that. So the general sentiment right now in B2B is that sales development is icing on the marketing cake. No, it's not. It's poison in the champagne glass. So why would you want poison in the champagne glass? Um, because that ruins the whole thing and it just spreads and it's infectious. And so um, I believe that sales, of the four bad practices that we talked about, prospecting slash sales development, the sales assembly line, quota and commission, um, the reason why my book is called The Death of the SDR and the reason why I, I, I focus a lot of my research and efforts on sales development and prospecting because I see that as the biggest and the first mm -hmm. domino. You've, you knock down that domino, the rest fall um, because companies to be marketing led. This is a marketing issue. Now, marketers should have hope. 50% um, of SDR teams report into marketing which I think is more honest because prospecting and sales development is a marketing activity, not a sales activity. The purpose is to generate and qualify leads. Um, and so, um, Mark, to the, you know, if marketing controls that, um, and SDRs are poor into marketing, marketing will have greater success, uh, with these being able to get buy-in and, and executing these experiments faster. Um, so the companies where SDRs are poor into marketing will probably be the, uh, and already are the largest group of first adopters, um, who enjoy the biggest competitive advantage because remember the. It's a massive competitive advantage. While everyone's running on the old growth playbook, 
that's that does more harm than good is unnecessary you now have a new growth playbook um and so go for it now obviously it'll be easier i think for younger companies um because they don't have these bad practices so calcified they don't need to unlearn um anything. and it's exactly and they can easier switch um, it unfortunately that's not the same for m more mature companies where you know these they're calcified and there's a lot more uh, vested interests who want to preserve these bad practices like let's say sales or sales development um, although yeah yeah so um, and um, you know I think another thing to kind of consider is that more mature companies tend to attract less entrepreneurial mm -hmm. talent people who are less likely to want to rock the boat and try something new which is one reason why more mature companies tend to stagnate and why they yeah. get, uh, you know, you know, unseated by their younger upstarts who have to be smarter, who have to think outside the box, who have to innovate. And so they innovate not just in the product, but also in their marketing and sales. And so we need to, everyone needs to do that you know, regardless of your company size. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of goodies to unpack and um, a lot of good information to chew on. Uh, Nelson, maybe in closing, um, what would you say to a, uh, you know, B2B marketer or marketing leader that's right now caught up in the MQL hamster wheel um, and they do want to uh, bring change? They don't want to produce, any, you know, garbage uh, contact data, garbage MQL what should they equip themselves with in opening a conversation with their management and their CEO so they actually have a good chance of, you know, um, being able to start that first experiment you're talking about? So what, what would you recommend they do and how should they equip themselves for that first conversation? Yes, to any marketing leader or sales leader, CRO, CEO, investment capitalist who want a better growth playbook, more faster, easier for less, who want more productive, fulfilling careers, who want a massive competitive advantage to attract talented buyers alike, my obvious suggestion is to embrace the buyer-centric revenue model, to join the movement um, and have a better branch to swing to and to point to. You need a better North Star. Um, and so use use the book uh, as a frame of reference, all the detail, looked at my LinkedIn content, um, join the future Biocentric Revenue Model Slack community to discuss these ideas uh, and share best practices with peers. Um, use the experimental framework that I use in the book to to take this experimental approach, this crawl, walk, run approach to sunset, sunsetting these bad practices, to getting buy-in from the other departments, to propose a business case to ownership and leadership and prove your approach experimentally in a you know and so it'll be undeniable and if you if if you are denied by your ownership or leadership you know then maybe you should think about taking your talent elsewhere for a better return um and that's a huge wake-up call for for companies who want to attract mm -hmm. top talent because top talent will seek its more productive and fulfilling return um and so if you are ceo um and you want to attract the best marketing talent um then you should seriously think about this model um, and giving the freedom of your marketers and your sales and your sales folks to to run with this, um, and so, um, but yeah, you uh, you know, you, you need to you need to be able to attack the the root cause of the problem. You need to be able to explain why that's that the, that's the issue to address and get off the MQL hamster wheel because the cause is sales development and prospecting, and then what preserves and fuels and fuels that is the predictable revenue model. So you need a new model. So um, this gives you the ammunition to, to do your thing. 
um, to, so, so, so make use of that. Um, you know, that's how you're successful, um, in creating change. Uh, and so don't worry about trying to overturn the B2B, uh, status quo overnight, just focus at your own company and on your own career and making that better, you know, um, having a more fulfilling, productive career and helping out your own company with this model. You can share the book internally with leadership and ownership to help people understand things. I made, you know, I hope it's fun. It's, it's an easy read and it's available in all sorts of different formats on Amazon as an ebook, as a paperback, as an audible book. Um, you know, my LinkedIn content breaks down some of this stuff in bite-sized contents. There'll be a future biocentric revenue model podcast. So, you know, bringing on folks to talk about this stuff. So lots of different ways to get people exposed to these ideas. Ideas like startups take time. You're going to have your early adopters. You're going to have your early majority, your late majority, and your, fi- and your late majority. I think I just repeated myself, but you get what I'm saying. And so yeah, yeah. you want to be the early adopters here. Um, not the and, laggers. Yeah, not the laggers because – there's a significant cost for the laggards. Um, they're bearing it right now. And as all companies are bearing it to the extent that they adopt these bad practices, but as, as the competition moves in to abandon these bad practices and, and better ones, that hill is going to get harder to overcome. Your hole is going to be dig deeper. I mean, we go back to our bas- <laughs> basketball analogy. No one wants to be on the losing team. Everyone wants to be on the, on the, on the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe Bryant, you know, um, and everyone wants to go watch them play. Everyone wants to go watch MJ play on the Bulls. No one else, you know. And mm-hmm. so you want to be that winning team. You want to be that team that crushes the competition. Um, and uh, yeah, and that makes investment capitalists happy and gives them a, a super great return. Um, so yeah, um, I really hope you know you guys see this as a positive movement um, to liberate you know B two B and modernize liber- uh, modernize B two B and liberate you know. Um, folks for more productive and fulfilling careers, marketers, sellers, and especially sales development who who are suffering and can't wait to transition anyhow to marketing sales operations as soon as possible. So SDRs will be the first to thank you. A lot of SDR managers and leaders who are unfulfilled, um, you know, luring unsuspecting young folks to basically spam people and pull their teeth constantly and manage a spam team. Um, you know, they'll find more fulfilling, productive careers in these departments as well. So I hope they see this as a positive opportunity. I've spoken to many of them who who do see this as a positive opportunity. And anyone who's a prospecting peddler, who's a, who's selling prospecting software services, I encourage them to diversify their offering into marketing or into sales or operations. Um, so if you're an outsource SDR agency, start to diversify into marketing um, and offer marketing services, you're anyways likely doing a lot of extensive proper non-spam marketing for your own agency. So it shouldn't be that hard. Um, and you'll see more client ROI, you'll get better margins and more profitability and you'll regain your soul. Alex Boyd at Revenue Zen is a good example of this. Um, but yeah, if you sell prospecting software, I would say either sell now and exit while the market before the bubble bursts or diversify Mm -hmm. your offering into, into marketing. So there's something for everyone in this. There's something for marketers, sellers, CEOs, prospecting peddlers, SDRs, you know, that, that can benefit um, if they see the light and they don't try to bury their heads in the sand. Um, So capitalize on this. There's a market shift happening um, and you can either benefit from it or fight until it's too late and get burned by it. So. Yeah. Wise advice here. When is the second edition of the book coming out? 
Oh, yes. So good news, everyone. Um, <laughs> the second edition of the book is coming out probably in the next week or two. Um, and again, it's available oh. as an ebook, paperback, Great. and audiobook. And if you don't mind my annoying voice, then it, it, it's narrated by myself. So you can listen to me. Um, it's easier to listen than it is to read. So you can check out the audiobook, uh, play on 2x speed or whatnot. The first edition of the book was released nine months ago in September or something like that, September of 2021. I can't do my math right. That's why I went into communication because <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do math. And so- Yeah, I cannot either, but I think it, it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go with nine months. And uh, that was sort of the MVP. This version of the book is the fully baked product, all the proof, all the evidence, all the quotes, all the case studies. Um, it's the definitive statement of the buyer-centric revenue model. And I hope you really enjoy it and you join the movement, you join the discussion, you join the community and- um, you know, we can be part of this movement to overturn the status quo. Fantastic. So guys, uh, connect with Nelson on LinkedIn, uh, join the Slack community, search for the book. I'm definitely going to, you know, um, listen to it. So really looking forward to, to the second edition. Thank you so much, Nelson. This has been super informative. Like my head is spinning with so much information, but super, super useful. And it's, super obvious that you're so passionate about the uh, about you know the buyer centric revenue model so yeah very interesting conversation thank you so much <laughs> <laughs>